0: Well, take your Bible and turn to the Gospel of John. This will be our last Sunday in John until August 7th when we'll return back to John chapter 5. But tomorrow, or excuse me, next Sunday, we're going to kick off a series in the book of Proverbs. But this morning, we're going to look at verses 18 through 24 of John chapter 5 in a sermon I've entitled, Like Father, Like Son. Like Father, Like Son. That you've probably heard that phrase before, like father, like son. That's a proverbial statement that is commonplace in our English vernacular. I did some research on it this week and discovered it's actually been in English parlance since the 1300s or a form of it because we see it as a self-evident truism, like father, like son. It's somewhat straightforward. We can see it that sons often Develop the characteristics and the traits of their fathers. Now this is true not only in biological and physical characteristics and traits, but it's true in other traits as well. Um, We can share the same kind of habit patterns. We can have the same speaking dialect. We can have the same food preferences. We can have the same likes and dislikes, even the same occupation. In fact, I'm a musician. Both of my sons are musicians. I'm a Florida Gator. Both of my sons are Florida Gators. And try as I might, I cannot convince my grandson Carson to be a Florida Gator. Now, when he was younger, I could get him to say, Go Gators! I could get him to do a Gator chop, But not now. You know why? His father has thoroughly brainwashed him to be a Kentucky Wildcat. Why? Like father like son. Now, one of the ways we've seen this in previous generations is particularly in the occupation or the vocation that men would embark on. They would often take over the business. They would follow in the family occupation, the family line of their dads, and I'm personally very familiar with this. Most of you know, I grew up on a farm. My dad has three sons, and of the three sons, all three of us, right out of high school, determined we were going to take up the family business. We were going to be farmers just like that. And so I graduated high school in 1987, a long time ago. And when I got out of high school, though I did go to college in the evenings and on the weekends, I fully determined I was going to be a full time farmer just like my dad before me. Until eight years later, the Lord called me out of farming and into vocational Christian ministry in 1995 similar thing with my older brother tony he graduated high school in 1981 right out of high school he determined i'm going to be a farmer so he went to work on the family farm for him it only took two years god got a hold of his heart and called him into vocational ministry as well then there's my oldest brother carl he graduated high school in 1978 man he is old (laughs) old 62 years old he just like the two of us right out of high school pursued farming But here's the difference. He's still farming the same farm we grew up on. 44 years later, and get this, his son, 27 years old, is working on that same farm with him every day as well. Like father, like son. It's knit into the fabric of our lives. Children long for relationship with their fathers. They long to connect with their fathers. And here's the thing, Jesus was no different except for the fact that his father is god his father is the creator of the universe and because he claimed his father was god he too was claiming he was god and that we saw that claim somewhat enigmatically last week at the end of our last passage The whole explanation from Jesus that we're going to study today on the relationship between himself and the Father is really a response to what happened in the passage we studied last week. Namely, that on the Sabbath day, Jesus healed a man who had been lame for 38 years. But not only did he heal him on the Sabbath day, but on the Sabbath day, he told the man, get up, take your bed, and walk. Now it'd been one thing to get up, and it'd been another thing to walk. But Jesus specifically told him on the Sabbath day, "Take your bed, take your bedroll, your your mat, your sleeping bag." You see, because according to the man-made traditions of first-century Judaism, to carry a sleeping bag constitutes work. But Jesus was all about poking the man-made traditions of the Jewish leadership. He did it in order to reveal. These man made religious traditions are dead. And he comes to bring life, liberating life. But here's the thing they would have none of it. In fact, look at the last two verses from our passage last week, verses 16 and 17 of John 5. It says this And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. What, What did he mean by that? My Father is working until now, and I am working. Well, see, the Jewish people understood this concept that though on the Sabbath day they were commanded not to work, it's impossible for God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, to stop working on the Sabbath day because otherwise the universe would collapse upon itself. God is upholding the universe. So the Jews believed, yes, God is always working. He doesn't take the Sabbath day off. And Jesus says, I agree with that. My father is always working. But then he adds this statement, and I too am working. What is he saying there? He's saying, I'm God. I have the same attributes as God. I have the same qualities as God. And this is exactly how they took it which is why when we look at our focal passage today, beginning at verse 18, we'll see how they respond to this statement. So let's look at our focal text, John 5, beginning at verse 18. This is the Theonoustos, the God-breathed word of God. Here it is. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Again, this passage is probably the clearest clearest and most succinct description, especially from the words of Jesus, about the inner workings within the Trinity, and namely the inner working between God the Father and God the Son. He gives a very clear and unmistakable explanation what it means for him to be the one and only the unique, the only begotten Son of God. Now, many scholars have concluded upon studying this passage that what we find here is actually Jesus giving an address to an assembly of Jewish leaders, perhaps even the Sanhedrin themselves. Reason being is because of the formal structure of the passage. In fact, notice what Bible scholar J.C. Ryle says. He put it like this. Nowhere else in the Gospels Do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of his own unity with the Father, his divine commission and authority, and the proofs of his Messiahship as we find in this discourse? To me, it seems one of the deepest things in the Bible, and as such, we get insight into the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. That is absolutely astonishing. Now, at the end of verse 18, the the accusation brought against Jesus is described. He referred to God as his father, and so they concluded Jesus is making himself to be equal with God, and their accusation was absolutely correct. (laughs) Jesus was making himself to be equal with God. Now, this would have been the height of blasphemy for the Jewish people to claim equality With God. You see, because the watchword of Judaism, the watchword of the Jewish faith, was Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, known as the Shema. You're familiar with it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, that's Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one. There's one God. And so here, for anyone to claim deity, to claim equality with God, to claim to be God, well, it would have been the highest form of blasphemy, and it is blasphemy, unless, of course, it's true. Now, here is why their consideration of Jesus's address in John 5 is so important and so vital to our faith. Look at this slide. In claiming to be equal with God, Jesus is also claiming to be the only way to know God. Jesus is not claimed to merely be a way to know God. One of many ways to know God. No, as the unique son of God, with equality with God, he's claiming to be the only way to know God. And I don't have to tell you, in 2022, this exclusive claim does not sit well with our multicultural, diverse, and pluralistic society. In our world, it's considered to be the height of arrogance to claim that our faith... Our religion, our understanding of ultimate truth is the only way. You've probably seen at least this top bumper sticker, coexist. That all the religions just need to coexist together. Here's a new one I just found this week. I believe in diversity. And you see the emblems and icons for different religions. It is, again, considered today to be the height of of arrogance to say that our way of believing is right and all these other faiths, all these other religions, all these other ways of believing are wrong. People will say, it's fine for you to believe in Jesus. It's fine for you to worship God as Jesus just so long as you don't say other people should. That's just intolerant. And that does sound reasonable on the surface. You believe what you want to believe, I'll believe what I want to believe. It sounds reasonable, except it allows for a form of belief in Jesus. Don't miss this. It allows for a form of belief in Jesus that is, in effect, disbelief. It allows for a form of belief in Jesus that is unbelief. To suggest that Jesus is merely a way, that he is simply an expression of the divine, Or simply one subjective approach to human religion is to deny virtually everything that Jesus said. It's impossible to examine the claims of Christ and to land on some amorphous, neutral middle ground. In fact, the Jewish leaders to whom Jesus was speaking, they didn't land on some amorphous, neutral middle ground. How did they respond to Christ's claims? Well, as we progress through the Gospel of John in the months ahead, look at some of the way they responded and the accusations they made against Christ. In chapter 7, verse 20, they make the accusation that he is demon-possessed. You get to chapter 8, they start to bring up, oh, we don't even know where he comes from. We don't know who his father is. He has an illegitimate birth, seeking to discredit him. They further sought to discredit him because he was a Samaritan. And you know you can't believe Samaritans. And then in chapter 8, verse 52, they once again brought up the accusation, uh, he must be demon-possessed. Chapter 10, verse 20, they went back to that old worn-out excuse, he must be demon-possessed. And finally, they concluded, he's insane. He's a lunatic. He needs to be locked up. It's, in fo- it's impossible to examine the claims of Christ and land on a neutral middle ground. They certainly didn't. Now, of course, people will attempt to do so. There are so-called Christian churches which have completely abandoned the exclusive claims of Jesus. So instead of being gospel-preaching churches, they are churches that have essentially become religious social clubs. They use their platforms. They use their pulpits to try to teach those in their churches how to simply be responsible global citizens. Make sure you recycle your recyclables. Make sure you're caring for the environment. Be sure that you you are nice and kind to others, that you help the poor and that you assist the homeless. And make no mistake, I'm for all those things. We recycle all of our recyclables. But this is not the message of Christ's church. The message of Christ's church is that men and women are destined for hell because they've broken the law of God. And only through faith in Jesus can you be redeemed from that lost condition. We are, as a people, on a collision course with judgment. And Jesus came to deliver us from that hopeless future. This is why we say there is an exclusivity to Christ's claims. There's an exclusivity in John's gospel. And it comes right from the lips of Jesus himself. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that there is a formal structure to this discourse we just read from Jesus that many have concluded he was giving a legal defense to a religious hearing, perhaps even the Sanhedrin. We see that because of the unique structure of his address. And in fact, you can see four points of his address all identified with the word for, F-O-R. And I tried to emphasize those when I read the passage. I don't know if you noticed that or not. Look in your text or in your Bible study outline and look at verse 19, the end of verse 19. For whatever the Father does. That the son does likewise. The next one is in verse 20. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Next one, verse 21. For the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. And finally, verse 22. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. Jesus presents four distinct fours, F-O-R, four lines of defense. This is why I can claim to be the son of God, equality with God. Now, to better understand these four truths and these four lines of defense that Jesus is giving to these religious leaders, I've coupled in them under two headings. Two headings. And so I want us to consider these statements within these two headings. Hopefully we can better understand them. The first heading is this. I want us to consider the personal connection of father and son. The personal connection of father and son. And this is what we see in the first two, four statements of verses 19 19. And verse 20, we see that there is a connection. There's a relational connection between the Father and the Son. This is displaying for us how they relate to one another. And again, there may be no other passage in all the Bible that delves so deeply into the relational connection between Jesus the Son and God his Father. And in that connection, it's displayed in two of these statements. The first statement, we see this, his dependence. We see his dependence. Look again at verse 19. I'll read the whole verse. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. Here's the four statement. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus wants it to be clear. I do not work independently from the Father. There is a dependence the Son has upon the Father. The Son can do nothing of his own accord. In light of that fact that Jesus is making this address to the Sanhedrin, one of the things that he's communicating by this line of defense is that I'm not claiming to be a rival with God. Just because I claim equality with God doesn't mean that I'm a a rival with God. No, we are equal and we do the same thing. We have the same will. We have the same desire and design. they could have concluded he was claiming to be another God other than the one true God. But he says, I do nothing of my own accord. In other words, there is an order in the Trinity. The Son of God, though co-eternal, co-equal in nature with God, is subordinate to the Father. There's a hierarchy in the Trinity. This is why Jesus could say he delights to do the will of God. The the son only wills what the father wills. There's no division in the Godhead. Whatever the father does, that's what the son does. Whatever the son does, that's what the spirit does. Like father, like son. We can see this in human terms, can't we? In father-son relationships. Again, I grew up on a farm and I can remember as a child seeing my dad do things the way he worked and what he did on the farm, and I would do them in a mimicking, copying kind of way, not knowing why we were doing this, but I just did it because that's what dad did. One thing in particular, I mentioned this to Amy last week, it just came to my mind. My dad, for whatever reason, whenever he was going to dig a hole with a shovel, which you dig a lot of holes with shovels on a farm, as he would go to dig a hole in a shovel, he would set the shovel down and stick it in the dirt, and he'd go, <coughs> <coughs> grab the shovel and start digging, Right? So what did I do as a kid? I'm going to use uh, antibacterial stuff before you shake my hand later, just to let you know. <laughs> but I would, I would dig the holes. I didn't know why I spit in my hands before I used a shovel. That's just what I did because my dad did it. Like father, like son. So the son, he says, can do nothing by himself. Christ does nothing that is independent from the father. Because the God the father and God the son and God the spirit, for that matter, as we'll see when we get to John chapter 14 and others, They share in the same nature as God. They share in the same essence as God. That means they have the same purpose. They have the same will. They have the same design. They don't act independently or even in competition with each other to accomplish divergent purposes. Now, they may manifest in different functions, but those different functions are always to accomplish a united, single will. Let me give you some examples. In creation... We can understand that God is the creator of all that exists. Genesis 1 1. In the beginning, God created. But I would see God the Father as the architect of creation. Colossians chapter 1, verse 6 says that he, Jesus, made all things. He's the general contractor, if you will. He's the manufacturer of all that is. And then Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we see that the Holy Spirit is hovering over the face of the deep. The Holy Spirit is the caretaker of creation. All the same purpose, the same will, but different functions. We can see it in our salvation. I mentioned it earlier. God the Father purposed your salvation. You have been chosen before the foundation of the world. God the Son procured your salvation. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And God the Holy Spirit applied your salvation. Titus 3, 5. He washed you with the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Now, skeptics have attempted to create some kind of division within the Godhead. They say statements like this, what kind of father would send his son on a death mission? What kind of father would be so sadistic to send his one and only son to die for other people? But friends, there is no division in the Godhead. Jesus was just as willing it was his will to die for you as god was willing to send him to die for you there's no division it was jesus's will to die for sinners and the point jesus is making is that there is nothing that he does that is independent from the father whatever the father does the son does likewise there is a dependence in the godhead next notice this second thing his devotion his The second four, verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. In modern Christian culture in the United States, we have a tendency to focus primarily on God's love for us, on Jesus' love for us. We talk about how much he loves us. We sing about how much he loves us. And all those things are true. God does love you. Jesus loves you. Paul talked about God's love for you. Peter talked about God's love for you. The apostle John talked about God's love for you. Jesus himself said in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. But did you know that God's love for you was not the highest motivation in sending his son for you? Did you know that? Did you know that Jesus' love for you was not the highest motivation in him coming to save you. So why? What was the primary reason for Jesus dying for you if it wasn't his love for you? Here's why Jesus died for you. Because he loves the Father. Here's why God sent his Son for you. Because he loves the Son. That is the highest motivation and the primary reason behind all that he does. And this theological reality of the divine devotion being the highest priority of the Godhead, it's often not considered in our modern churches and evangelical culture. As such, I've seen in my lifetime, the last 30 years in ministry, an increase in what I would call a man-centered gospel as opposed to a God-centered gospel. This man-centered gospel, that man is the highest point of the gospel, is given expression in some of the modern songs and worship pieces that are recorded and produced today. So much so that I have personally rewritten the lyrics before we sing them. <laughs> One that we used to sing was a Michael W. Smith song called Above All. Here's the original lyric of the chorus. It said, "Crucified." Laid behind the stone, you lived to die, rejected and alone. Like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall and thought of me above all. You see how that could be man-centered? Now, it is true, when he was on the cross, you were on his mind, but you were not the highest thought on his mind. Obedience to the Father, the will of the Father, love for the Father, above all and so here's how I rewrote the end of that song you took the fall and thought of me you are (laughs) above all another song is one that we sing and I absolutely love it it's called what a beautiful name and the second verse seemed a bit too man-centered to me and so we changed I changed the lyric the original lyric says this you didn't want heaven without us so Jesus you brought heaven down my sin was great, your love was greater. what could separate us now? And so that first line seemed to indicate that somehow heaven is deficient without you and I. That God has a man-sized hole that only you can fill. <laughs> Friend, God is not deficient in any way. He did not create humanity because he was lonely. He created humanity so that he might display all the manifest glories of his grace. So here's the lyric we sing when we sing the song. It's one I wrote. Son of God from the beginning, You took on flesh when you came down. My sin was great, your love was greater. What could separate us now? Now, you may be thinking, Troy, that is theological hair-splitting. Is it really that big of a deal? For one, it may not be legal that I change those lyrics, but uh, don't tell anybody, okay? (laughs) (laughs) If the security of your salvation, listen, if the assurance of your salvation rests in your understanding of God's love for you... In Jesus' love for you, then what happens to that assurance when you do something that is unlovely? What happens to that assurance when you do something that is unlovable? You begin to falter, because you can think, how could Jesus love somebody like me? But I'm going to read this next paragraph that I wrote, but I want to read it word for word because I don't want you to miss the truth of this tr- reality. If the ultimate assurance of salvation is based upon the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father, if your security is based upon the fact that you are in the grip of the Son and the Son is in the grip of the Father and no one can pluck you out, if your assurance is based on the fact that Jesus has redeemed a people as a loved gift for the Father and the Father presents to His Son a bride who is pure and adorned in white, if you rest your confidence in the fact that the accomplishment of the gospel in our lives is the culmination of the eternal love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father, then your assurance of salvation ramps up significantly. Your security as a believer is forever and always tied to the love of Between the Father and the Son. And we know that is a love that can never be broken. This is why it's important for us to recognize Jesus has done all that he has done, yes, because he loves you, but primarily because he loves the Father. In fact, notice how John put it, Jesus put it in John 14 31. He says this I do as the Father has commanded me. So the world may know that I love you. No. So the world may know that I love the Father. He does all that he does as an expression of his love for the Father, like Father, like Son. So this is the first two of the critical four statements Jesus gives in his discourse before these religious leaders that show the personal connection between the Father and the Son. Here's the second two I put under this heading, the profound capacity of Father and Son. The profound capacity of Father and Son because Jesus as God's Son is in essence and nature equal with God the Father. Not only do they share an unbreakable and eternal relationship together, but they also share the very same relationship Prerogatives and the very same privileges that come with being God. We see this in the capacity that he has as the Son of God, which is proclaimed before these religious leaders. The first he talks about is this his power. His power. This would be the third, four statement in his address. Verse 21 For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. This is another reason why Jesus claims to be God. He claims to be the one who has the power to give life. Who has that power to give life to the dead? Only God. In fact, the rabbis of Jesus' day fully understood this. I discovered in my study this week a rabbinical saying from the first century. It was this. Three keys are in the hand of God, and they are not given into the hand of any agent, namely that of rain that of the womb and that of the raising of the dead. In other words, only God can impact those things. Only God has the power ultimately over those things. Only God can give life to the dead. In the Old Testament, there was an account in the book of Second Kings where the king of Syria had a servant by the name of Naaman. He's a big dipper, Naaman, if you know the story. Naaman had leprosy and the king of syria sent naaman to the king of israel with a letter and the letter was essentially i need you to heal my servant and notice how the king of israel responded in second kings chapter 5 verse 7 and when the king of israel read the letter he tore his clothes and said am i god to kill and to make alive in other words it was understood among the jewish people only god has the power to give Life. Only God has that prerogative to give life. And Jesus says, I can give life to whom I will. This is profound. Profound. Now remember, this claim comes on the heels of Jesus giving life, as it were, to a man who had been lame for 38 years. And he proved he has life-giving power. And this life-giving power was most Clearly proven in the Gospel of John in chapter 11 when he gives life to Lazarus who was dead in the grave. In fact, if you'll remember, when Martha came out to greet Jesus as he came, purposefully came delayed so the glory of God might be seen, notice what Jesus said to Lazarus' sister Martha while he still was decaying in the grave. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, Yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. But listen, Jesus is not just speaking of physical life. He's speaking of spiritual life. All of us, apart from Jesus Christ, every single one of us, separated from God, are what the Bible describes as spiritually dead. But for all who trust in him and his work of redemption, His vicarious death on the cross, his burial and his resurrection to new life and ascension to glory, all who trust in him and his work are given eternal life. Life. Jesus says, that's the divine prerogative, and I have that prerogative. Many of you can remember that moment when Jesus did that for you. Do you remember? When you went from death to life? Do you remember the moment? You were regenerated. Only Jesus can do that. So we see his profound capacity in the fact that he has the power to give life. But finally, I want us to see it in his prudence. His prudence. That is his capacity to make discretionary decisions. His prudence is his ability to be just in all of his decisions, to be impartial in his judgments. Notice again, verse 22. For... The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has been appointed by God the Father, judge of the universe. Make no mistake about it, friend. When you stand before God on Judgment Day, and everyone in this room and everybody watching our live stream, you will stand before God on Judgment Day to give an account And when you stand before God, you'll be standing before Jesus. And you will see the scars in his hands and his feet. You will notice the marks from where the thorns impaled his skull. Jesus is judge. Like this is what the Apostles' Creed pronounced centuries ago. He comes to judge the living and the dead. Now think about this. If all this is true, if it's really true that God has given all judgment to the Son, then any notions of religious pluralism are absolutely false. There is not multiple ways to God. There is only one way to God. If someone says, you Christians, you can believe whatever you believe. Go ahead and worship Jesus as God. Just don't Insist that other people worship Jesus as God. Friend, there is no other way. And the problem with that, with that notion is that you can say people can believe whatever they wanted to believe about Jesus, but if you don't believe about Jesus, what he says about himself, then you are destined for a devil's hell. Why? Because all judgment is given to the Son. Now, some today malign Christians, particularly because of our biblical views, for instance, on sexuality, on the sanctity of marriage between one man and one woman. And they'll present what they think are intellectual gotcha statements for you Bible-thumping fundamentalists. They'll say things like, you Christians should be more like the Jesus you claim to follow. You should be more loving like Jesus. You should be more accepting like Jesus. You should act more like Jesus. They say, give me the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount. I want the Jesus that says, be kind to one another. I want the Jesus that says, turn the other cheek. I want the Jesus that says, you know, walk an extra mile with somebody. I want the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount. I want to say, really? You sure you want the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount? Because on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made some audacious claims about himself. As he concluded that sermon, he says, Whoever follows these words of mine will be like a man who built his house on the rock. Whoever does not follow these words of mine, your house is going to topple over. Your life will be destroyed. And then Jesus had the audacity to say, the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount, that there are going to be many on that day of judgment, he has been given all judgment, who will say to him, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? Didn't we teach our churches to be, Good global citizens. Then we teach them to recycle. Then we teach them to help the poor. And those are all good things. But Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And there will be people in Baptist churches who cover over sexual assault that will say, We did all these things for you, Jesus. He'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Jesus is the Judge! So we have no place to say, I'll just take this kind of Jesus. You can't cherry pick the teachings of Jesus to fit your predisposition. Now, after giving these four lines of defense to the gathered religious leaders, notice what he says at the end of verse 23. Whoever, and we're all whoever's in here, Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. That's Jesus speaking. Religious leaders, you don't honor me, you're not honoring Yahweh. You're not honoring the Father. Imagine what it must have been like to be there that day as the religious leaders. To hear all these claims of godhood coming from the very lips of Jesus. I have no doubt that most of those who heard those things that he said were absolutely enraged. They were infuriated. We know that because moving from this point forward, they sought to have him killed. They are the ones who are responsible for him being scourged by the Roman soldiers. They're the ones who are responsible for him being nailed and crucified on a Roman cross. But it's to these haters, these willfully disobedient, that Jesus makes a legitimate offer of life. Notice what he said in verse 24, the last verse of our passage. Jesus says to them, truly, truly, and he, in Greek it's amen, amen. I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. You may be here this morning and you may be a hater. Well, maybe you're not a hater, but you're just ambivalent. Yeah, I don't really know. And here's the promise from Christ's lips. Whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. Did you notice that's in the present tense? Not the future tense. It's not whoever believes in me will one day have eternal life. Whoever believes in me has, right now, eternal life. Not, well, you've had a good start. Let's see how you finish. Not if you give enough money. Has. Eternal life is the life that starts with Christ, and because it is eternal, it lasts forever. I'll close with this. Last week, I got a call from my son Trevor. Dad, my car's making a funny noise. He always calls Dad, right? We've established this. (laughs) So I go to where he's broken down here on Lilac Avenue. It's before school, and the Transmission. I tried it. It's going. <laughs> won't go forward. It won't go backwards. And I said, oh, Trevor, I think the transmission is gone. So later, Trevor and I, excuse me, Trent and I towed the car to the mechanic. And I'm thinking, on the way, as we're towing that car, I'm thinking, is this little car that Amy and I bought, is it even worth spending the money to put a new transmission in it? Now, Amy and I bought this car for Trevor back in December. A couple days after I took it to the mechanic, just between wakefulness and sleep, Amy says, Troy! I said, what? Didn't Trevor's car come with some kind of a warranty? I said, "Yeah, I think it did. And we looked it up. We bought it in December. It's a six-month drivetrain warranty, which means it goes out next month. So, of course, I started a claim, and they've agreed to pay for the repair. Hallelujah! But guess what? The warranty from Jesus is not a six-month drivetrain warranty, not a 60-mile warranty, 60,000-mile warranty, not even a lifetime warranty. Eternal life. Today, you believe in Jesus, you present tense have eternal life. This is the offer from Christ who is the Son of God. And that leads to my last thought. Those who trust in the eternal son will be set free to enjoy the forever life for which we were created.